Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. A serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball, the life of 147 days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson-Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get started. Days 124 through 130, Sunday through Saturday, September 16th through the 22nd, 2001, six smiley faces, i.e. bowel movements. As far as being lost in a way about what career to stick with, I can sort of understand. There are too many careers I want to um, do in one lifetime, and I just can't choose one. Adrian's email to a friend dated September 4th, 2001. Adrian's career list from 2000 to the present. Professor of religion. Zoologist. Forensic psychologist. Full-time artist as a painter or digital art. Webcam star. Fashion designer. Computer programmer. Studio musician. We have to leave our home on Sunday, September 30th. For the first time in my life, I am hiring a moving company instead of renting a U-Haul truck and bribing friends with pizza and beer. Even though our new residence is only 3.84 miles across town, I don't have the time or the energy to pack up everything in the house. John refuses to pay for the movers because he thinks they are a waste of money. He doesn't see how much time it will save us, or how important it is to get Adrian's bedroom set up in the new house as quickly as possible. I save up $1,000 from working at picnics and look in the yellow pages under movers. I randomly call companies to obtain quotes. At the third place I call, an employee named Gina answers my questions and concerns about hiring strangers to handle my things. I feel comfortable telling her in detail why we need movers and why they must work fast, but be careful too. I tell her how Adrian was diagnosed with hepatocellular carcinoma, how particular Adrian is about her stuff, and how Adrian is doing homeschool now. Then Gina reveals to me her son was diagnosed with hepatoblastoma when he was two years old. The, the doctors gave him six months to live, but her son managed to survive for another two years. I feel as though I've swallowed a licorice stick composed of hope and terror all twisted together hope because her son beat the odds, terror because he died anyway. He's been gone for three years now, she says. I can hear an echo in her voice, and I know it's not our phone connection. She has other kids, though, so she pulled herself together. Raised Catholic, she confides she lost her faith for a few years, couldn't even walk into a church. I imagine her shaking her head, remembering the pain and maybe bitterness. I went back a while ago, had to forgive. Gina never pushes her religious beliefs on me or says inappropriate things, such as God only gives you what you can handle. Like Adrian, 
Her son's disease is a horrible, unexplainable thing that should never happen to a child. When I hang up the phone, I realize three things. I forgot to write down the quote. We talked for 45 minutes, and despite the hope, terror, licorice not in my stomach, I feel better. Adrian works on literature assignments for Honors English 10. The Honors classes are often paired together, so students study the same culture for two classes. Adrian has been learning about ancient Greece, its history, government, and culture. She is also reading about Greek myths, their history, and their relevance in today's society. An English teacher at Burbank High works with me to determine Adrian's assignments, and her first essay has to be about a myth she creates from any of the following topics. Creation, love, heroism, law, or death. Each topic has subsequent subcategories. She spends three days thinking about which topic to choose. What do you think, sissy? She asks. I notice she has one star next to the function of gods, sex roles, and reincarnation. She has two stars next to the world of the dead and its permanent inhabitants. Why did you rule out a creation myth about man? Because everybody writes about creation, and I can't think of a myth about life. What about heroism? That's what I would choose. The minute I say it, I know she won't consider it. Adrian works hard to be her own person. If I would write an essay about heroism, she would do the exact opposite. I'm going to think about it some more. Well, you better get started. It's due in less than two weeks. Yeah, I know. The next day, I find her working on a brainstorm for the essay. Unlike most brainstorms I saw when I was teaching, Adrian practically writes a rough draft. She fills up three pages, single-spaced, with complete sentences and a diagram of the order of the paragraphs. I don't read it. She never lets me read anything until she has a real first draft but I ask her which topic she chose. Death and the afterlife, she replies. Oh, I say. I don't ask why she picked that topic. I don't want to know. I chalk it up to ting angst, but I know it's not. The licorice knot in my stomach becomes all terror and no hope, and I feel a shot of pain like cramps from food poisoning. Saliva evaporates from my mouth. Where did it go, I wonder? And I think maybe my appendix is bursting again, but no, that already happened last year, last summer. I need to sit down. I grab a kitchen chair and gravity pulls me into it. I breathe. Why is she writing an essay about death? I can't think about it. Adrian would have chosen the same topic even if she were not sick. The lies we tell ourselves to survive. Email, subject, recent events, date, September 16, 2001, to my address book. Dear everyone, I have been getting so many emails regarding the tragedy that occurred in our country this past Tuesday. Since everyone has an opinion on what happened, I'm going to be a bit presumptuous and share mine. Today is significant for me. You see, my world came crumbling down four months ago. 
It was Wednesday, May 16th, at 3.30 p.m. when I came home from work and Adrian said, I don't feel good. Six hours later, we were told she had tumors in her lungs and liver. Two days later, she was diagnosed with hepatocellular carcinoma, a rare in this country and serious type of liver cancer. According to the doctors, there is no cure. But like me, Adrian is stubborn and determined. She is fighting and fighting hard. Her liver is still functioning normally. And although the tumors in her lungs have gotten worse, she is still able to breathe on her own. She has started homeschool and strives to maintain her 4.0 GPA, even though she is always tired from chemotherapy. I'm not saying the events last Tuesday didn't affect me. It's just that our world, Adrian, John, and mine, and other family and friends, already fell apart some time ago, and we are struggling every day to rebuild it. I keep hearing people say that the terrible events in our country have reminded them how fragile life is. Trust me, I know. Every day I watch this incredible, amazing 15-year-old fight this nasty disease in her body. Some days you have hope. Other days you wonder why she has to go through this. But I know one thing. Not fighting was simply not an option. I realize terrorism and cancer don't really compare. And I understand violence begets violence. But for our country, I don't think not fighting back is an option any longer. I may not have a lot of faith in our president, but I do have faith in this country and its people. We will rebuild those structures. We will resume our lives. And like Adrian, we will beat this thing no matter what it takes. It is a fight worth fighting. Take care, everyone. Love always, Andrea. After more than a week of the oral chemotherapy Zlota, I noticed its effects on Adrian. Though the pre-meds stop the vomiting, she hardly eats because when she does, she experiences heartburn pain that radiates throughout her digestive tract, causing her stomach to ache for hours. The clinic recommends Zantac, Mylanta, and Tums, but nothing relieves the burning in Adrian's body. I believe the sheer lack of food has weakened Adrian and caused her to lose more weight. She looks like a walking skeleton. She's so exhausted she naps more than half the day. I often catch her falling asleep at the kitchen table with a pencil in her hand. She coughs constantly, maybe from mucositis, another side effect of the Zalota. The pain seems to move around her body, from her shoulder, to her liver, to her back, to her joints, to her head, until it starts all over again. The one positive thing is she is at home and her immune system seems to be intact. Her cholesterol has dropped from 375 to 358, far from normal, but a small improvement is better than none at all. Her liver enzymes continue to fluctuate. One has risen to 230, but the other has lowered to 18. However, since the doctors expect her liver enzymes to be abnormal, they pay little attention to these numbers. However, I see a pattern emerging, and I wonder if I should be worried about it. I email Adrian's doctors about my concerns. Dr. Quino suggests a medicine that suppresses stomach acid, like Prilosec, to alleviate the heartburn. While he does attribute Adrian's exhaustion to the chemotherapy, he says the cough is unlikely to be related to Zalota. If mucositis isn't causing the cough, then what is? His omission confirms my fear. 
the tumors are irritating Adrian's lungs so much they are creating the cough, which has made her ribs sore and sensitive to the touch. Even though it feels like an exercise in futility, I continue giving Adrian cough syrup. And even though she must know it's not helping her, she accepts it. I hope the Prilosec will make a difference. Adrian has to eat. I can't let her starve to death. Sissy, you have no school spirit whatsoever, said Adrian as I walked away from the television. She forced me to watch the USC versus UCLA football game. She doesn't even like football, but every year, Adrian insists we watch my alma mater play its biggest rival. She followed me into the kitchen. I can't believe you're not going to watch the rest of the game. SC won, Adrian. I don't need to watch the rest. But, but this is huge. Come on. You're always saying how they sucked when you were in school. When was the last time they beat UCLA? I don't know. When I was a freshman, I think. That was nine years ago. You should be proud of your Trojans. I am, but right now I'm also hungry. <sighs> she made a big show of stomping off, throwing herself onto the floor, and watching the rest of the game. I laughed and ate my sandwich. I don't know when Adrian began watching football, maybe when John came into our lives. He doesn't follow college much, but he loves the pros. I also don't know how or when she became a bigger SC fan than I am. Since she's already thinking about college, I am always pushing her to consider top schools outside of Los Angeles, such as Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, or Berkeley. I want her to be on her own, free to make her own decisions, good and bad, without me looking over her shoulder. Moving 2,000 miles away from home was one of the best things I ever did. I don't understand those parents who can afford to send their children away to any university in the world, but insist they go to a local college, live at home rent-free, and have their expenses paid. The irony is, though I encourage Adrian to think beyond Southern California, I think she has every intention of staying in LA and applying to USC. She will get in, of course. Her counselor confirmed college acceptance should not be an issue if she maintains her GPA and scores high on the SATs. Adrian does well on standardized tests, ranking in the 90th percentile on her reading and language skills. She already passed the California high school exit exam, although according to her, it's a joke and everyone she knows passed. I don't care everyone passed. I'm proud of her. If she can get through this year, this month, this day, she can get into college. She's always wanted to go to college. Please. Don't take that away from her, too. Adrian's feet chap. The beginning signs of hand foot syndrome. Kirsten recommends bag balm cream. Look for the green can, she says. You can't miss it. I find the cream at the pharmacy. Even on the shelf, the cube-shaped tin looks like something sold by a street corner apothecary during the 19th century. Looking closer, I read, Vermont's original since 1899, and I laugh. Adrian's going to love this stuff. When I show her the tin, she likes it until she reads the small print. Did you see this, sissy? For use on cows, thoroughly washed, treated teats and udders with separate towels before each milking. This stuff is for animals. Last time I checked, we were mammals, which counts. 
Kirsten said it works great. Now, give me a foot. Adrian groans but acquiesces. I apply a generous amount of the bag balm, which looks and feels like Vaseline, only thicker, to Adrian's foot. Then I put a sock over the protective layer and repeat the process on the other foot. This feels gross, but sort of better. Good. We'll do it every night to prevent your feet from peeling. Kirsten warned me stopping hand foot syndrome before it got out of control was the best way to prevent it from hurting Adrian's quality of life. She told me horror stories of people who couldn't walk on their feet or use their hands at all. I didn't repeat these tales to Adrian. Let me see your hands. They're fine, sissy. Let me see. Her hands show no signs of being chapped, but I massage bag balm into them to be sure. Adrian frowns. Are you done? Yeah, I'm finished. On my pager, the outgoing voicemail, which I usually update every week, gives information about Adrian's condition. People leave messages for me there because I don't give our home number out to anyone except close friends. One day, I am surprised to hear a pleasant female stranger's voice. Hi, I'm Loreen from the Montel Williams Show. I'm calling to speak to Andrea Wilson. We're interested in doing a show about you and your sister. Can you call me, she asks. I grab Adrian's spiral medical notebook and jot down the number. Adrian, she looks up from her history assignment. What? Guess what? Montel Williams. Well, not him personally, but the show. For a moment, the sleepiness leaves her eyes. She sits up straighter. Really? Yep, they finally called. <sighs> Man, what the hell took them so long? Call them back, sissy. Okay, I will. Now. All right. After a brief game of phone tag, I talked to Lorene, one of the show's producers, who asked me questions about Adrian. When she asked me what the angle of the show would be, I feel like saying, isn't it your job to figure that stuff out? But I don't. Adrian wants to meet Montel, so I reach in the back of my brain for the biggest bullshit answer possible. I tell her Adrian and I want to educate America about the link between hepatitis and liver cancer, as well as share her experience about being a teenager with a serious disease and how it affects her life. All of which is partially true. I want people to know about liver cancer, but I doubt Adrian cares if the world understands her problems. I can tell Loreen likes it because she talks about the logistics of developing the idea, bringing us to New York, and that's when I stop her. I didn't think she meant now. The show took so long to contact us, I assumed she was discussing a possible appearance in the future, when Adrian feels better. Every day this week, Adrian has experienced pain, heartburn, nausea, exhaustion, and coughing fits. When she isn't sleeping, she struggles to keep up with her schoolwork. We don't have time to fly to New York, and Adrian doesn't have the energy either. I don't bother hiding the disappointment or frustration in my voice. Lorraine, Adrian is too weak to travel. You waited too late. I think to myself, you should have called last month. She was stronger then. I don't blame the show producer who is only doing her job. I just... Damn. Adrian wanted to meet Montel. Lorene rushes to get off the phone. Perhaps I made her uncomfortable or maybe she's moving on to the next story. She says things she doesn't mean. Please call us when she gets better. We would love to have her on. 
I say things I don't mean. Of course I will. We look forward to meeting Montel one day. I will never speak to her again. I tell myself these white lies because I, my heart, can't handle the truth. I feel like my intellect is protecting my heart like Jack Nicholson in the film A Few Good Men. He screamed in the courtroom, you can't handle the truth. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. You don't want the truth because deep down you need me. You want me. I do need my intellect. She allows me to live in a healthy state of denial so I can get up every morning and take care of Adrian. She makes sure I don't cry in front of her. I don't know what I would do without her, but sometimes my intellect lets her guard down, like at the end of the phone conversation with Lorene. Adrian will never meet Montel. My acknowledgement of this truth causes my heart to feel heavy as if it's full of stones. The pain spreads through my lungs, up my throat, which begins closing until I feel myself gasping for air. Stop. Breathe. Everything will be okay. Take it one minute at a time. I tell Adrian about my conversation with Lorene, leaving out what my intellect forced my heart to see. She seems disappointed but not surprised. I try to read what's going on behind her olive green eyes, and if I'm not mistaken, Adrian speaks the truth to herself. She knows she will not meet Montel. She has done a lot during these past four months, experienced so much life. I hate I can't make this one thing happen for her. Has it only been four months? Sissy, John, I, I can't breathe. John rushes to Adrian's side, asking her what's wrong. She coughs long and hard and she points to her chest. It hurts. Okay, kiddo, he says, let's go. Where, I ask. He gives me his famous, are you an idiot look. We're taking her to St. Joe's. Do you think that's necessary? I regret the words as soon as they come out of my mouth. Adrian's eyes widen, John's eyes narrow. They stare at me. I feel horrible, but it's midnight. I'm tired, and I know there's little the ER doctors can do. If Adrian's oncologist can't stop her cough, what can they do? During the 10-minute ride to St. Joe's, Adrian's wheezing makes me realize the hospital can help her, and I'm selfish for wanting to stay at home. In the ER waiting room, the staff recognizes us immediately. I guess we left quite an impression two weeks ago when Adrian couldn't stop vomiting from the adverse reaction to interferon. Wide awake now and ready to be here, I tell them, my sister needs oxygen. After reviewing Adrian's chart, the doctor on call orders a chest x-ray and blood panel starts Adrian on fluids, and tests her oxygen level. It has dropped to 94%. Between coughs, Adrian lets him know she prefers a mask instead of a nasal tube. That's my girl. To dull the pain, Adrian receives one milligram of Dilaudid through an IV attached to her central line. Soon, the coughing has ceased and her breathing has relaxed. The chest x-ray, as expected, is normal 
except for the tumors. Adrian does not have pneumonia. She receives a total of 350 milliliters of fluid to hydrate her, which is good because her daily liquid intake for this week has fallen below 55 ounces per day. The CBC is normal, except for a below average hemoglobin level, but Adrian's chronic anemia is not unusual anymore. The doctor discharges Adrian at 3.04 a.m. 30 minutes later, we are home and sound asleep. Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Ball, the life in 147 days. We're nearing the end now of the story, and I really hope you stick with me. It's definitely not getting any easier for me to record this, but stick with me. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for the next episode. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening. <laughs>